0: On this episode of the Fieldhouse Files, we'll discuss the loss of a giant, Slick Leonard. He passed away on Tuesday after living an amazing life. He was 88. And welcome into the Fieldhouse Files, the podcast where I take you behind the scenes with the Pacers, talk to individuals on and around the team, and tell you what you need to know. Hi again, everybody. I'm Scott Agnes, and this is a special edition podcast because we're going to talk about Mr. Pacer, Slick Leonard. It's been a tough last 48 hours for the Leonard family, for the Pacers, for the state of Indiana. And when you talk about Indiana basketball and what it means to be a true Hoosier, Slick was it. Homegrown in Terre Haute, and he had to earn everything. And he appreciated everything, and you knew it. There's so much I can say about Slick. I'll try to do that on this podcast and future episodes. And like many, I grew up listening to him on the Pacers Radio Network. He's done that for 36 years and did it up until his final days. Did it from a hospital. He did it from his cell phone. He hasn't even attended a game since before COVID. But he was always part of the broadcast, and I give a lot of credit to Mark and the Pacers Radio Network for inviting him, allowing for him to continue and And blessing us with him being part of the radio network and sharing his commentary. And if anything, for all of us to continue to hear from him and get updated on what's going on with him. And He was paired with Mark Boyle since the 1994 playoffs, and it worked. And when it works, you know it. And they were a perfect match. On this podcast, you'll hear part of some of my last interviews with him. And then I'll talk with Mark Monteith to look back at the career and life that Slick lived.
1: The memories that I really have are are the memories of the ABA championship years. That was an eight-year run, that was an eight-year run, and to me, uh, at this stage of my career, uh, those were the glory years of the Indiana Pacers because that's the only championships we've won. Uh, During that eight-year period, we went to championship series five times and uh, the other three times we went to the uh, conference finals, so it, it was a it was a fun time. And uh, I uh, I look back, and I look back at the, those ball clubs, and I, it's uh, it's unusual, but the uh, the front line we had then uh, of uh, Mel Daniels, Roger Brown, and George McGinnis. All three of them are in the National Basketball Hall of Fame, and that tells you a little bit about how good that ball club was,
0: as well as yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. You know, the only thing—the only thing there, there is—you uh, know—whether uh, I was playing, uh, playing at IU or playing in the pro game, uh, it all comes down to winning it all comes down to winning. If you don't win, it's you know, if you don't win it's misery. Yeah.
0: What does Mark mean to you from both being on the air and being your guy side by side every single game? Well, Mark's
1: uh, Mark's the number one guy in the NBA and I think a lot of a lot of people know that he's uh, he's he's the best broadcaster in the NBA. He carries me right on his back. <laughs> <laughs> he would
2: say the other way.
1: Yeah, uh, he carries me right on his back. Oh, Mark's been uh, terrific for me, and we're great friends. Uh, along with the broadcasting, and uh, he keeps me young. <laughs> and outside of a couple years in the military, uh, you know, I've spent my whole life in basketball, and uh, mm-hmm. I've been we won championships we won the 1953 NCAA championship uh, at Indiana University and then we won uh, we
0: won championships in the ABA and uh, so it's been a it's been a fun career first you got to start with the pair because they come together always slick and Nancy his wife and they were really caretakers of the Pacers since forever They met their freshman year at IU in 1950. You may know the story, but I'm going to try to refresh it a little bit for some of you out there. And It's a legendary story how they met and first hung out. He invited her to an IU basketball game, and she got a little bit nervous when he didn't show up, but she was there to pick up her tickets at Will Call. Well, she had no idea that he was playing in the game, that he was a player. Well, then they got together, were married the day after graduating from IU, and have been together 66 years, and they always were sure to celebrate it. And She was always there by his side, always driving him to the arena or to appearances. She was the ultimate life partner, beloved by not just Slick, but the entire Pacers organization, and they worked hand-in-hand as Slick won 529 games, easily the winningest coach in franchise history, three ABA titles, and so much success with the team and then that carried on after his coaching days into the broadcasting life and the personality that we've had for the last 30 some years and you know all the accolades probably at this point but for me it was how he brought people together that's the lasting memory that's the number one thing when I think about Slick Leonard it's that smile the friendliness and again just it was always a party for him meaning Every day was special. He always had joy. And bringing people together is still his thing to this day. As I've heard players, staff members, friends, they've all been in touch over the last few days to talk about him. And so he certainly will not be forgotten. It was George Micah who first called him slick, and then he caught on. There's the old boom baby. Uh, Something that he rolled with, he understood was big for other people. He even had it copyrighted at one time. Let it expire. Uh, And then the Pacers picked it up um, for him went into the hall of fame in 2014 but more than anything he felt like a friend to everyone never rushed he always took time for anyone and it didn't matter who you were it didn't matter if you were the owner of the franchise the owner of a bar and we know he went into a lot of bars or just a fan and so making time for anyone and being nice to a stranger Always giving back when you can. Those are sorts of things I want to get better at. You may want to get better at, and he's an inspiration in that way, I think, as well. It's always special when you talk to him because he always added a Y to your name. He was always friendly, always welcoming. Old Scotty, good to see you, pal, he'd say. And I'm fortunate enough because I have enough recordings of him saying things like that during our interviews before and after. So those are things I certainly treasure And Slick was just someone I could always go to to learn more about the history of the game because he knew just about everyone, Uh, not just by an extension, one person away. No, he directly knew just about everyone. About a year ago, I had a call with him. I remember I was out of town. He was back home feeling good, and it was about the death of Mike Storm, who helped establish the Pacer franchise. And, of course, Slick uh, was right there, and we also talked about Jerry Krause, who was discussed uh, during the last dance with the Bulls. That all was going on at this time, and Slick gave Jerry Krause his start. Yeah, of course. Jerry Krause even lived with him. Before the three-point line was implemented, guess what? It was Slick who was pushed to make a presentation to other teams. He did, and it passed almost unanimously. Just one person voted against it.
3: So, the combination of 24 second clock and a three point line are two greatest rules that I've seen in my 60 some years really? in the league. How much opposition was
2: there when you were presenting it? One the guy, one
3: guy uh, was in opposition to it. Red Auerbach and Red Red Auerbach. Yeah. And the funny thing about it, right away, once it was passed, he goes out and gets Larry Bird, Danny Ainge, got a bunch of three-point shooters, see. So, uh, no, it, uh, it, it's been great. It's been great for the game. It's exciting. And, uh, like I said, it's, one of the best best real changes they ever made
2: along that same line as the whole boom maybe thing you've already told me how you how it came about but are you surprised how much it's taken off how much it is beloved here in Indianapolis how that's how a lot of the new generations even know you and think about
3: you right right it, uh, you know when you when you go out in the, and see the kids on the playground, Uh, shooting threes and saying boom baby and the high school kids, and put it into the college game. And, uh, you know, you got something pretty
2: good. It looked like originally you had it copyrighted. It, it looked. I was looking it up. Is it true the Pacers have it? The Pacers own oh,
3: it. Boom baby. Cop- yeah. No, I, I, I had a copyright on it. Uh, i let it expire. And then I think the Pacers picked it up. Yeah, I
2: think they did. So you don't own any any boom baby no, trademark all I anymore. Do. Oh,
3: I is <laughs> All I do is uh, when I die, it'll probably go with me. <laughs> it'll go with you, you think? Yeah, it'll go with me. I don't know about that.
2: And the reason you. I don't know anybody would
3: ever say it.
2: Around here they would. Well, they might. Yeah. Was there any. You, you named it after your book, too. Boom Baby, yeah, right?
3: Yeah, I did. I did. It's, uh, it's part of your legacy like, Well, it is. its It's been good. People like it. You know, I. I go down the hall out here and they don't say, hey slick they say, hey slick, boom baby you know, they all, it, it's caught on it's caught on, no question about it
2: and it seems like even the players like, oh, like yeah. I think Reggie well, even sometimes call oh, him like Mr. It. Boom Baby or- Reggie loved
3: it he said, uh, I remember a game in New York cause he, uh, he had a, he had a big one in New York Miracle, Madison Square and I went, boom, baby, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. He said, did you give me a triple boom, baby, on that one? <laughs>
2: yeah. Your, how much your kids and grandkids? Is, oh, they all, they just they love
3: all. it, too. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's kind of become a way of life, you know, with me. I can sit over here with Mark, and you know, Mark's a great broadcaster, great broadcaster, and I can just sit there, and let him broadcast. And then I, the hit one. I say, right? boom, baby. Right. That's my part. To respect the players yeah,
2: and he was saying how the first game totally threw him time time off because he would just together. blurt it out. Yeah, and you obviously wouldn't know each other yeah. well yet. Yeah,
3: he loves it. He loves it. <laughs> and then I got the other one that I sing. Ladies and gentlemen, the what? The I got the one that I sing at the end of my oh, ball, man. Yeah, turn out the lights. Yeah, turn out the lights. Do you remember how that
2: started? Where it I
3: got started? that. I got that. <laughs> from Don Meredith, when he was broadcasting Monday Night Football, oh God, old Don, he just right. passed away, and I thought it was great, and I, I picked up on it. Is it a
2: feel thing? Uh, when do you use it? Is it kind of a feel? Oh, like? yeah.
3: Because you don't do it too early. Sometimes well, I've never, I've never... Okay. That we got it
0: well, uh, I can go on and on about Slick, his style, how he treated everyone, how he was uh, great for the Pacers and their branding, how he is Mr. Pacer. But to discuss Slick and much more, my friend Mark Monteith joins me here. He was on the Pacers beat for a while, was close friends with Slick and Nancy and so many of those ABA Pacers. All right. As promised, I now bring in Mark Monteith, longtime reporter on the Pacers beat and a friend of Slick Leonard's. Truly. I mean, we all felt like friends of Slick Leonard, but uh, Mark was absolutely one of them. And uh, Mark, let's start with you. Just how, how has the last 24 hours been for you? It's obviously sad, but much like Slick always does, it probably brings together the Pacer family, former players, coaches
4: and such. Oh, absolutely. It's been a whirlwind the last 24 hours or so, you know, and you're reminded how beloved of a figure Slick Leonard was, uh, not just within the Pacers family, you know, meaning former players and people who worked for the franchise and so forth, but also just the fans. You know, so many fans felt like they had a relationship with Slick because they met him at a game or they met him out in the community somewhere and got a picture, got an autograph, that type of thing. I mean, he was such a giving person that uh, he had, I guess you could say, more <laughs> friends than anybody in the city of Indianapolis or the state of Indiana. You know, I I truly believe he's the most photographed person in the history of the state of Indiana because he would sit out there in that concourse before games and out on the smoker's porch at halftime of games and, you know, just a parade of people who wanted a, a picture or a signature, that kind, that type of thing. So it's all kind of bubbled to the surface here over the last 24 hours since his passing. Uh, and uh, it's, it's certainly sad, but obviously, one, nobody could be too surprised by, given his age mm-hmm. and all the health issues he had encountered the last few years. Um, but it's also a time, you know, of joy, really, because he lives such a great life.
0: Yeah, it makes me think. I think it was Slick who always used to joke, hey, I've lived five lives here. Uh, survived the plane crash. Survived that heart attack at Madison Square Garden in 2011. (laughs) Uh, The countless surgeries. I've lost track even over the last three or four years that he has endured from falling on ice to uh, all these different things. The procedure he had in December and then in the hospital a couple weeks ago. It just constantly adds up. But you think back to his career, Mark, and I I think this is one of the most telling things just about what he – in terms of accomplishments. Anytime you single out one thing – you you make everything else seem much lesser, right? Like, if you ignore his playing career, it was a good playing career. Or you talk about his broadcasting, or you talk about his coaching, like most wins in Pacers franchise history. I feel like any way you go about it, it that just suggests or shows truly how, um, how much he was able to accomplish in such a long time.
4: Yeah, yeah. You know, he has this varied career. You know, as a player, as you mentioned, you know, you're talking about a guy, and even if he had never... If he'd gotten out of basketball after his IU career, he would be a legend among IU fans, right, for hitting exactly. the game winning free throw in a national championship game and getting All America honors. But then he does have, <clears throat> excuse me, a seven year NBA playing career, cut short by injuries, really. He kept separating his shoulder. Uh, he wasn't a great NBA player, never was going to be an all star, but certainly had big games and big moments, was a viable player, uh, respected by teammates like. Elgin Baylor and Jerry West with the Lakers. Uh, So that adds to it. And then, you know, he coached briefly in the NBA, didn't have a good enough team to win with. You know, at that point, you know, he's in Kokomo, working for Herth Jones, driving around (laughs) northern Indiana, selling class rings and graduation supplies to the high schools, taking advantage of his name and reputation that way, you know, meeting with the athletic directors who – Many had been, or excuse me, the school principals. Many who had been uh, athletes themselves and coaches. Uh, so he was content doing that, you know. Up until 1967, you know, that's he and Nancy had just bought a house in Kokomo, and and they're living uh, a quiet life, content, a growing family. And uh, it was the ABA coming along that put him into a whole different world. <laughs> and uh, he so. You know, you could talk about his coaching and everything else, but he did so many different things. And he was going to be content outside of basketball. And I think that speaks a lot for him. That speaks to his character because some people would need to be in the spotlight, right? You know, they were a player. They were a coach. Uh, they loved the limelight. They want to be well-recognized and well-known. Uh, and they find a way to get into the game again. But he he could have been content working for Herth Jones, selling class rings, and Nancy was teaching business classes at Kokomo Taylor High School. Uh, But then the uh, ABA and Pacers came along and changed everything.
0: Yeah, I think that's amazing how he was able to easily make that transition. Just imagine, like, Jeff Foster or Danny Granger, you know, selling Herf Jones rings over here. Like, that. you have to be (laughs) humble about it a little bit, but also, not a, a little bit, you have to not be embarrassed by that either. Like, it's a new chapter of my career, and then things... Spiraled and worked out well for him into the the Pacers gig, and then everything else that had followed. Going back, you know, from his Terre Haute days and his childhood, and you're well read and, and well researched on everything Slick Leonard and Pacers. Where do you think that joy, that full of life, comes from?
4: I think by growing up poor, he did. You know, I mean, his dad basically was a ditch digger. Uh, Slick told me once he made twelve dollars a week. Mm-hmm. Slick used to go down on Saturdays and stand in line and get, uh, take a gunny sack and get handouts of canned goods and sugar and flour. Uh, So he grew up very poor. Uh, He grew up in an era when you could just kind of roam around and he'd go, you know, swim in the Wabash river. (laughs) He would, uh, you know, do just things that, you know, he says he's lucky he didn't get killed. You know, he was just, you know, adventurer uh, roaming around uh, which kids could do then. And I think he learned to appreciate all the basics back then. You know, by being as poor as he was in the family, um, he just had a great appreciation for anything he had. You know, he didn't uh, have great expectations for living in a beautiful house or driving a fancy car or anything like that. But then he was in a community uh, where there was a lot of influence. You know, I mean, basketball certainly put him into a different type of community where he would play against older guys in the neighborhood he talked about playing against some ex-marines who had come back from world war ii you know we're talking the late 40s and uh he'd play against those guys and they just beat the crap out of him you know but he loved being able to compete with those guys and he had a vivid imagination as well he had the ability to dream he would talk about watching the train go through terre haute and, you know, looking at the people on the train and wonder, you know, where are they going? You know, what what is the outside world like? What's out there? What's outside of Terre Haute? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in basketball, he would, like so many players do, go one-on-zero, you know, have an imaginary friend. He talked about I had an imaginary friend uh, that I would go one-on-one on one against, and I never lost, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so he had the ability uh, by his nature to fantasize and dream about success and doing things but at the same time he was always kept humble uh, because of the way he grew up and then to get into Indiana high school basketball and go through Terre Haute Gerstmeier and uh, get caught up in Hoosier hysteria you know is what kind of propelled him into different
0: And that probably is also, Mark, what led to his tough love with players, right? It seemed like he was going to rip his players and and call them out when it was necessary. But then at the end of the night, they were probably going to the hotel bar or over to his house for drinks after the game.
4: Yeah, yeah. he often talked about, uh, and I've witnessed this myself, the essence of coaching uh, is do you have the ability to really push your players, drive your players, challenge your players without turning them against you? You know, that's a hard thing to do. You've got to have a certain kind of personality. It's not something you learn at a coaching clinic. It's something you just possess by your nature. If you're tough by nature, uh, unspoiled by nature, but also a good-hearted person by nature, and you've learned those life skills as you've grown up, um, you know, you can succeed as a coach. The X's and O's stuff, you know, you can get anywhere uh obviously it comes down to players you got to have the players to succeed and he recognized that always he never thought you know that he was the reason they were winning championships so it was about having the right players but you know he had that knack for doing that uh he always talked about you got to know when to kick him in the butt mm-hmm. know when to throw an arm around him and hug him and he could do both of those things and i haven't seen too many coaches who could do that, and I don't think I've seen any coach who could do it as well as he did.
0: Yeah, that's such a delicate balance because we know, especially now in the NBA, it's a players league. If they don't like you, you're gone, and, and that's all it comes down
4: to, um, in the end. And so, you, you have to start. It was too, it was when he, when he when he coached, it was the same way, really. You okay, I mean, it was a players league then as well, and he knew that he always talked about, you know, I've never seen a jockey carry a horse, that's right, finish line, you got to have the horses.
0: That's one of his great lines, and he's got so many of them. Is there one that stands out to you? Some of his sayings that he often repeats?
4: Oh, let me think. You know, that's certainly that is one of the better ones. There's um, that. There's the know, story. I can't think of any off the top of my head at the moment, but.
0: There's obviously the pee running down my leg uh, story from the title game when he knocked oh, down yeah, a free yeah. throw. He hit the game
4: winning free throw. That's, uh, you know, that, that speaks, that story speaks to his humble nature. You know, he hit the game winning <laughs> free throw. When IU won the national championship in 1953, he had two free throws. He missed the first, hit the second, and then Kansas went down and missed a shot. So IU wins the national championship by a point. And um, after the game, IU's coach, Branch McCracken, is saying, I wasn't worried. That young man has ice water running through his veins. And when the reporters went to Slick and told him what uh, McCracken had said about the ice water, he laughed and said, I don't know. It felt awfully warm when it was running down my leg. You know? so, uh, how many players would say, oh, yeah, I wasn't worried. You know, I can't believe I missed the first one. I I wasn't nervous. I had it. Um, you know, there's a guy, you know, kind of making fun of himself for being nervous. And he says he was scared. He was – who wouldn't be, right? He was scared to death at the free throw line. That's why he missed the first, but he hit the second. And um, that line has stood the test of time, you know, and it really speaks – to his personality and his humble nature
0: what do you think it would have been like to cover slick
4: oh i think it was good you know the reporters i know that did cover him uh f- for the most part had a good relationship you know now he would manipulate the media you know he would send messages to players through the media <laughs> okay. so he didn't have to you know always say something to him directly he would say something like dave overpeck covered him for the star and, um, you know, I know some of the ex-spacers will tell you they didn't like Overpeck because some of the stuff he wrote, only to learn later that Slick was planting that stuff. <laughs> you know, he was wanting Overpeck to put that in there. He kind of felt it was good for the players to get jabbed every now and then, stay on edge and not get too full of themselves. So, but as far as his cooperation and accessibility, uh, from everything I can tell, it was great, even when he was at the peak of his coaching career. Um, <clears throat> keep in mind. Slick had a listed phone number has always had yep. a listed phone number back in the days when everybody had a landline and you needed a phone book to look up somebody's number. Um, you know, the leonards on Hillcrest were in the phone book and anybody could give him a call. So for a reporter to call, him, there's no big deal, but he was always available at practice. Uh, I believe his practices were open. I think uh, Robin Miller, who covered him some talks about being in the locker room at halftime of games and, uh, Now, you know, Robin did write something once that broke their relationship for a couple of years, you know, and Robin admits he made a mistake. But, um, you know, Slick could get mad or irritated with media people, but on the whole, his relationship was really good because just of who he is. You know, he's a nice guy. Uh, He's an accessible guy, and that made him a good coach to cover
0: none of that surprises me because i can't think of one time for example over the last decade where slick's been like no i'd rather not talk about that or no i don't have time it's always nancy answering the phone yeah hold on let me check on him here you go
2: (laughs) hey old buddy how you doing scotty
0: yeah always the same thing always adds the why to everybody's always that
4: way yeah always that way and their door was always open and um you know, I mean, literally, he got to the point when he was not in good health and, you know, in that recliner, you know, I'd just walk in. I'd kind of knock on the door and walk in, and they didn't want to bother to come answer the door, you know. So they had an open-door policy for certain, and I don't think he ever turned down a media a request for an interview. And that's not because he had an ego and wanted to be out there and be written about and be talked about. It was just because he was a cooperative guy by nature who wanted to help people do their jobs.
0: Do you think he understood the magnitude uh, of what he meant, what he represented, who he was for Indiana, for Hoosiers?
4: Yeah, I do. I think he had to understand how popular he was, you know, just the way he was greeted everywhere he went and treated everywhere he went. Uh, he I'm sure he understood how popular he was, but I don't think he was impressed by it. You know, I don't think he I don't think it went to his head by any stretch of the imagination. You know, he would um you know, he basically just followed the golden rule. You know, you, you thought you should be nice to everybody, you know, the way you want to be treated. And it was as simple as that. Um, so he never let it go to his head. You know, I, I can't speak specifically to when they were winning championships in the early 70s. And he was on top of the world as it existed in Indianapolis. But um, I, I I don't think he was ever swayed by it. I think he understood it. I think he appreciated it. Thinking, think he enjoyed, you know, just being able to greet everybody or be greeted by everybody whenever. Uh, but I don't think it ever affected him. I don't think it ever uh, plumped up his...
0: Mark, I think one of the most long-lasting legacies, at least for me, for Slick, is how he brought people together. Yeah, we can Again, I can go back to my earlier comment. You can talk about his broadcasting, his coaching, his playing, but to me, this is what stands out. There, it, there's not a time when I talk to a former player or team doctor, David Craig, the former trainer, and it seems like, oh yeah, I was over at his house two weeks ago. We all got together. Now talking about normal times, obviously that's one of the most impressive things to me, what he was able to do. And it all goes back to that personality of being welcoming. And I'm curious, you've been at some of those parties, maybe even organized some of them. Is it just a gathering of everyone? I'm picturing people just gathering around him and telling stories, or is he not always the life of the party during those scenarios?
4: Yeah, I wouldn't say he's the life of the party necessarily when he's with his former players or the spouses of former players. He just kind of blends in. He and Nancy both. Um, you know, I've organized a couple, there was like, oh, three, four years ago, right before the race, a guy named Steve Tubin, the former Pacer, who only played with the team really for like 25 games in one year, Slick, actually it wasn't Slick's call, but he got traded away and broke his heart, but uh, he was back in town, so I thought, hey, let's get some people together, and I wanted to meet Steve because I'd never met him in person, although talked to him on the phone a lot, so... I called Slick and Nancy and I called Roger Brown's wife, Jeannie and George McGinnis and Jerry Harkness came out and Neto came out a few other people. Um, and we went to, um, uh, season 52 in that private room there and just had lunch, very casual. And, you know, Slick and Nancy always just kind of fit in to those groups. They didn't have to be the life of the party. They didn't have to be in control of anything. Um, you know, there are other times when I organized something small and they just showed up. You know, and that's pretty remarkable, really. You know, am I going to organize something and, and invite Larry Bird or right. you know um, <laughs> you know even you know one of the current coaches or something like that? I mean, we all have our status, and you know, most people who have high status aren't going to just accept an invitation from anybody. So Slick and Nancy were like that. If you organize something and You know, it applied to them. They'd be there, Uh, no questions asked. So, that's just one example. But they, man, you know, they showed up for things. Uh, Roger Brown's ex-wife Jeannie, you know, had a little party for Darnell Hillman after he retired last August, and and you know, it was COVID period, so you couldn't have too big of a group. But Slick and Nancy were over there, along with Darnell and George McGinnis and Jerry Harkness, a few other people. So. They were willing just to show up and be there and be part of the scene and never felt like they had to be um, in charge of anything or have any status over anybody else. Uh, They blended very nicely.
0: That doesn't surprise me and sounds about right, yet at the same time, one of the best things about Slick is his endless stories and the way he tells them. That's a special talent to be able to tell stories, hit, hit the inflection points and in all of this. And so I couldn't sit around long enough to hear all the stories that he'd want to share and those sorts of things.
4: He's got great stories. And the great thing for us is that whenever he tells them, he tells them like it's the first time. Right. You know, he doesn't say, oh, all right. Yeah, I've told this a hundred times, but here you yeah. go. You know, it was he would tell the story like he had never told it before and uh, tell it in detail. He was a great storyteller because he was a great communicator. And that's one reason he was such a great coach is that he knew how to communicate with his players. He knew what to say. Uh, He would listen to them. Uh, You know, he didn't just give rah-rah speeches or threatening speeches or whatever. He knew how to get to them. And that, you know, he would tell them stories as well about his playing career that uh, they could learn from. So, yeah, you know, he he was a great interview, uh, and he was interviewed so many times, and he told those stories about the plane crash and various things so many times, but he always made it seem like you were hearing it for the first time.
0: He suffered that heart attack in 2011, right before I came on the beat, so I never got to see Slick be on the road and those sorts of things, meaning I picture him very much like Donnie Walsh was, was always when he was courtside and just... People of the other team constantly flowing down to say hello or have a conversation. Was that what it was like when Slick was on the road um, traveling with the Pacers as a radio analyst? Or what do you remember from your time there?
4: Yeah, back then, you know, the media people sat courtside. The radio and even the newspaper guys would sit courtside. So he'd be down there you know, before games, and there wasn't the city you couldn't go to where somebody (laughs) didn't know him or he didn't, you know, or at least had a friend who knew him or something like that. He just had so many connections. Sometimes former players would come by. Um, You could be in Los Angeles or Seattle, whatever, and there would be people wanting to talk to Slick. So he enjoyed it. He loved being out on the road. You know, he just enjoyed being with the guys around the team. He loved it when he coached the Pacers. He loved it when he was a broadcaster with the Pacers. Uh, So many opportunities to see different people and just be around the team. Uh, I remember Buck Boyle told me once that when he, after he had that heart issue and was going to need to cut back on his schedule, Mark had called him before the season began and said, "You know, Slick, if you want to cut back this year, (laughs) it's okay. You know, if you maybe you only want to do." Half the games, you know, maybe you uh, just wanted to do the home games. And Stuck so said, well, if I'm doing half the games, I'm doing the road games. <laughs> so, you know, he always had that sense of adventure. You know, he wanted to be out there on the road with the guys, you know, with the team, seeing what's going on, being out in the world. So um, that also made him successful. I mean, when he coached, uh, when they flew commercial and they wouldn't fly out after a game, they had to stay overnight and fly out the next morning. You know, he'd have the team. He ordered the team. Just go back to the hotel bar, have one drink. <laughs> yes. Didn't have to be alcohol, but you had to be there, uh, reminisce about the game a little bit, and then you can go out and do your thing, whatever your thing was. But the team had to gather after the game, and he loved that part of it. So he was able to do that as a broadcaster as well. It was you know generally him and Mark Boyle uh, being out somewhere with other you know members of the training staff or PR staff that type of thing. Now, when Bird was coaching the team, it was a little different. When Bird was coaching the team, those two guys were so tight that just like every game, uh, of course, Bird would have a suite. The coaches always have a suite in these five-star hotels they stay. Joe Catado, the equipment guy, would go get a case of beer. Corky, yes. And Bird and Joe would gather in Bird's suite and stay up half the night telling stories. So (laughs) uh, Slick loved that as well. Do we ever know
0: what extent um, Slick mentored coaches as they came along because I know Frank has mentioned it some Frank Vogel here recently, but that was past the time when uh, Slick was no longer traveling either. So I'm curious, do you know was he mentoring guys? Hey, let's watch film or this is what I'm seeing, or this is how I would handle this situation?
4: Yeah, I don't think he mentored coaches. I think he respected you know that position and wanted to give them the freedom. You know he wouldn't have wanted another coach telling him what to do necessarily now i think in in the case like larry bird he would have been close enough that he might make a suggestion now and then you know state an opinion now with Frank, he was close with frank vogel um gosh i mean nancy leonard sold the vogels their home here in indianapolis when they coached here and they would go out together the four of them they still do i mean frank will come back in the summers i think he still owns the house here yeah And yep. the four of them would get together in the off season so i know he would give thoughts to Frank. I remember that playoff series when Roy Hibbert was just going down the drain, you know, and couldn't do anything. I know Slick at one point called Frank when when the team was in Atlanta and suggested bringing Hibbert off the bench. Uh, Frank didn't do it. He did kind of reduce the playing time. He'd start Roy, and then if it wasn't going well, he'd get him out of the game real quickly and go with a smaller lineup. So Slick would do things like that if he felt close enough to the coach. Other coaches, you know, uh, like O'Brien uh, and maybe probably Rick Carlisle too. He probably didn't feel close enough to him to have that kind of communication, but and he would do it some with players too. I know he worked. Al Harrington asked Slick, you know, hey, can you work with me? You know, let's get in gym somewhere in the off season and you know put me through some drills, that kind of thing. And Slick loved that type of thing. Uh, he had great relations with the players, even though he didn't really coach them individually or even you know, give them advice. Uh, but they all loved him being on the plane and on the bus, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. You know, Reggie Miller obviously uh, was close with him. He called his production company, Boom Baby Productions. Um, Slick used to talk about how he enjoyed talking to Jalen Rose, guys like that on the on the buses. He loved being around the players uh, and, and talking with them, but he wouldn't always feel the need to give it advice. I think he knew to keep his distance and not say anything unless
0: and that's not easy that's one of the things that also impresses me with his social skills is he can at the same time be humble about his accomplishments and you know what he has been able to do yet at the same time understand hey it's a different generation or look i'm a broadcaster now i'm not part of the team although I love being part of the team, and that's one of the best parts of, of being with a group is you're able to celebrate together. And going back to your previous point, I, I love that, how he would bring everyone together post game. Even, you know, don't have, have a drink or not, but you have to be here, and that's the type of stuff. For example, right now, and this is just due to COVID, but you're not able to have those type of team-building exercises and to spend time together and hang out on the road as much as they would like.
4: Yeah, they had team-building exercises after every road game. You know, they were in the hotel <laughs> lounge and, uh, and you know, joking. And if they'd lost, you know, they might be angry. But I, he didn't use those occasions to, like, yell at the players. I mean, they put the game behind them and probably talked about it. But uh, it was a social time more than anything. So. You know, and, you know, they would have, the Leonard's would have parties. The the You talk to the, the longtime members of the stat crew, the guys you know, like Bob Bernath. Sure. You know, they would tell you stories. Yeah, we'd go over to Slick's house every year, uh, and uh, they'd have a big party, and it would be uh, players, you know, some former players, front office members, stat crew members, other people around the team. And they would have some kind of team party on just about every holiday, except for, Probably Thanksgiving or Christmas. I mean, there would be a July Fourth party at Bill York's. There would be a you know race party, Memorial Day party on another occasion, a Labor Day party. They were always having parties with the front office people, the stat crew guys, you know, and that built that family atmosphere. You know, they, they they'll talk nostalgically about the Coliseum days where there was a place called the Pub. There was a place in the Coliseum called the Pub. You know, a little bar there. And they would always gather in there after games, after the home games. Players would come through usually and grab a beer or two and talk for a while. So they had that social aspect uh, going on all the time. And that's what they miss. You know, that's what they talk about how that changed when the team got into the NBA and got into Market Square Arena, how it became more of a business. Uh, Before that, it had the feeling of being a game. And the Leonards were perfect, you know, for that type of atmosphere
0: talk about his colorful personality he also dressed very boldly I, I think compared we don't see it as much here in the last decade or so or at least I didn't but it's fun for me to go back and see photos and see videos of him coaching and he's got a special look to him do you know where that came from or is that just him being him
4: yeah that's him you know that's just reflects his boldness of his personality. You know. I, I just think it it was expressive, you know. He'd wear the the leisure suits, you know. He'd wear some bright colors or a white suit, that type of thing. And I don't think he was doing it necessarily to try to draw attention to himself. It was just an expression of what he felt inside, you know, the energy, the enthusiasm, uh, the aggressiveness, that type of thing. So, uh, you know, they he got teased a lot about that, you know, the leisure suits, that kind of thing. But you know. Everybody dressed pretty weird in the '70s. So that was the style—the the the wide lapels, the bell-bottom pants, and that type of thing. And he might have been a little flashier than uh, most other coaches, but he, um, you know, he wasn't that far different because that was just the style. So, uh, again, I think it just reflected what he was feeling inside.
0: Wrapping up here, just because I know we could go three or four hours. I'm curious, personally, what he meant to you. Was it? What stands out about your relationship, both with him and Nancy? Because that's the other thing I want to stress to everyone is without Slick, there's no Nancy and vice versa. They, they go together everywhere. And that's where I'm really thinking about Nancy here now moving forward. What did Slick and Nancy, what have they meant for you?
4: Yeah, just to have two people around who were highly accomplished and highly regarded who were so generous their time and so nice so welcoming that type of thing is a great thing you know there were lessons you could learn from slick just by hanging around i, I could remember a pacers game in milwaukee one year you know how they bring those mascots together sometimes and have birthday those, parties, like a halftime basketball game yep. a birth- boomer's birthday right that type of thing um we were in milwaukee and they were having one of those halftime deals with all the mascots around the league and I just thought it was kind of silly. I remember just standing there next to Slick, and I said, ah, boy, this is entertaining, isn't it? <laughs> and he smiled and said sincerely, oh, isn't it great? And uh, so I kind of caught myself, and I said, yeah, I, I can understand how this would appeal to a lot of people, kids especially. And he said, well, some people got a sense of humor. And that really, that stuck in my mind. Like, you know, here's guy. He wasn't too good for that type of entertainment. He thought it was great. A simple thing like mascots out there. Playing basketball or doing whatever they were doing. And here I was thinking, you know, it was silly. And here was Slick saying, ah, this is great. He just appreciated it, appreciated the simple things like that. So you'd pick up on things like that just by being around him, just by the way he treated people every single day. He didn't have moods, you know, he treated people well every single day. Um, And that always rubs off, you know, and particularly somebody as accomplished as him. who could get away with having an ego, who could get away with trying to place themselves above others and not wanting to deal with or relate to uh, some of the minions like ourselves, you know. So, uh, you know, you learn. You learn from that. It just helps you mature and uh, also helps you appreciate a lot of things in life.
0: Well said. Yeah, Mark, it just goes back to finding the joy in everything and and enjoying it. Like there's probably appearances players don't want to do and speaking engagements. He would find a reason. He'd make a connection. He'd hang out probably with the event organizer the following night knowing him. But that's awesome. Mark, I appreciate you taking yeah, time. I'll and, tell
4: you, oh, go ahead. Let's well, get along those lines. I'll tell you one more thing real quick. You know, David Craig, the trainer, you know, he roomed with Slick on the road. <laughs> and you know, that was an experience in itself. But uh, um, he said that when they were in those hotel bars on the road, uh, David and Slick would shut it down. They'd be the last ones to leave. Slick would have, you know, his usual quota of alcohol. But they always had a toast at the end of the evening and said, uh, you're nobody until you've helped somebody else. And that was kind of the um, philosophy they carried through. That's what came from Slick. Does he have a go-to drink? Uh, Beer. Mostly beer, yeah. He would drink hard alcohol some but he could put the beer away. He was always saying that you could sweat out the beer. You know, he had learned that from <laughs> Brentford back in. and I knew that, you know, you could drink a lot of beer and sweat it out and it won't hurt you. If you start drinking hard alcohol, then, you know, you're going to have a hangover, that type of thing. Uh, but he would do that occasionally. But uh, he drank a lot of beer in his day, he smoked a lot of cigarettes mm-hmm. in his day. <laughs> he bet on a lot of card games in his day. You know, I always said, Spick, you're you're a medical Marvel because you've got every vice known to man and here you are, eighty whatever years old, still mm-hmm. ticking, you know, you just are a medical marvel.
0: I think he understood that too, and so he said, Why change? I'm just gonna continue to be me. But as you told that story, I could totally visualize him saying that. That's where I think he'll too live on, is those stories, that candor, um just just his one liners that he would just say so quietly that would just always hit
4: sense of humor had a great sense of humor and that always kept things going i mean i could tell you more stories from former players i know you probably want to wrap this up but he had that sense of humor that allowed him really to get on the players and keep them from rebelling against him uh talking to donnie freeman one time donnie was the starting guard on the 73 championship team and um he had a two-year contract you know he, they won the title in 73 he was back on the team the following year. In that 73-74 season didn't go very well. That's when things were kind of falling apart with that core group. And he, Freeman was frustrated, I think, with his role. And frustrated with Slick, that kind of thing. And uh, But he said that, you know, I couldn't stay mad at him for long because he had that silly little laugh. And he could say anything and defuse the situation. So, you know, I think players would get mad at him. Like any player can get mad at any coach at any time. But on the whole, Slick was able to keep things going uh, in a positive way uh, because of a sense of humor. You know, he could yell at you, but he could make you laugh Mm -hmm. and uh, make you quickly forget about whatever it was you were mad about. And life went on.
0: How do you think you felt about his nickname? I thought it was notable how Nancy never called him that. It was always Bob, but the nickname Slick given to him by Mike and uh, George Mike and back in his Minneapolis Lakers days. Uh, what? How do you think he yeah. felt about it?
4: Uh, I think he liked it. Because he obviously, I think he would have rebelled against it um, if he didn't. I, I was thinking yesterday, I should have asked him if he had a nickname before Slick. You know, did his teammates at IU or the right. people in Terre Haute or you know, people like that, did they ever have a nickname for him? I'd be curious. But And it technically wasn't Mike and that gave him the nickname. It was Hot Rod Hundley. He was playing cards on the bus with mike and during the exhibition season when he was with the minneapolis lakers and as they were pulling into a restaurant uh slick they were playing hollywood gin and slick ran the table or whatever you do at hollywood gin uh against mike and won the game and mike and said uh why don't you buy me a cup of coffee slick uh or once you call me why don't you buy me a cup of coffee you're just too slick for me and Hot Rod Hundley was in the seat behind him and was waking up at that point and heard it, and Hot Rod kind of applied the nickname to Mike. And Mike and said, you're too slick for me, and Hot Rod made that his nickname. <laughs> and I think slick liked it, and it was appropriate, yeah. not only the way he dressed back in the ABA days, but just his personality because he would find ways to win games. I mean, he wasn't opposed to bending the rules a little bit to win a game. <laughs> you know, I tell you, I played golf with him one time at Pebble Brook, <clears throat> and it was like 90, 95 degrees, and he was starting to suffer. He was really wearing down, and I'm, like, worried, man, is he going to have a heart attack out here on the golf course? Am I going to have to give Slick Leonard mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or something? And then He would do that just to see what to you do, I he think. He says, uh, you want to bet? You want to bet on these last three holes, dollar a hole? And I said, okay, sure, and that he revived. I mean, he just perked up. And he started playing better, and we got down to the eight. You know, I won a hole, he won a hole. We get down to the 18th hole, and he claimed my drive was out of bounds. I'd never played the course before; I didn't know really what was out of bounds. wasn't familiar with it. He claimed my ball was out of bounds. I questioned it, but you know, that's he would do things like that. He would find ways uh, to get a victory if he had to bend the rules a little bit. He would do it. Now, in this case, you know, he didn't want to take my dollar. I insisted he did. He wasn't really trying to take money from me. He was just trying to win. And I've heard similar stories about him on the golf course, that he would do something, you know, to help him win, uh, not to make money, but just to win. And that's what it was about for him. So, um, you know, he he just had, you know, his tendencies, and he had – competitive spirit that never ended and uh he usually got his way
0: i have your book pulled out right now reborn the pacers and the return to pro basketball and to indianapolis and i I love the back quote that's there on the cover from slick we're coming to play basketball but if they want to fight yeah we're ready for that too
4: (laughs) he was always (laughs) up for whatever the newspaper you know to fire up his players uh, (laughs) that you would get fined big time if you said that kind of thing today can you imagine? an NBA coach today saying, Hey, we're ready to fight, you know, that kind of thing. Uh mm-hmm. it would not happen. I remember, you know, they had a playoff series against San Antonio in nineteen seventy five, the Hang 'em high series, it's a great series. And um, you know, things were getting really volatile and Slick called Bill Benner and it's, planted quotes, you know, saying, you tell Bob Bass, if he crosses that mid-court line, I'm going to deck him. You know, stuff like that. (laughs) He's making threats in the newspaper (laughs) to, uh, I guess, to get his players fired up, and back then, you wouldn't get fined for that kind of thing. So, Uh, that also was part of his competitive spirit.
0: You got this book with which I highly recommend. Website markmonteith.com. You at least have three podcasts with two with Slick, one with Nancy, plus several more stories. Anything else uh, we should look forward to? You also have an IBJ column coming up later this week.
4: Yeah, I'll have a story on Slick and, uh, you know, what made him such a legend in Indiana in Friday's edition of the Indianapolis Business Journal. Uh, Unfortunately, it's no longer available on newsstands, from what I understand, except at the airport, but if you're a subscriber, uh, you can certainly read that online, or you'll get it in the mail. If you're not, you can consider subscribing, because there's a sports story in the back of every issue. Mike Lepresti and I take turns with that, so uh, I'll have something on slick on Friday, and there's a lot of material on my website, as you mentioned. I did a few long stories back in the day about him and about Nancy that kind of, Covers the gamut of his life, so uh, certainly somebody I always enjoyed writing about, and even more than that, I enjoyed talking to him.
0: Incredible storytelling, great stories, and you were there or are around there to document much of it and share with us. So I appreciate you taking the time, Mark. Glad you are well, and uh, yeah, we're all thinking about Nancy and uh, Slick's legacy and, and all of that. So it's it's special time to think back to what he was able to accomplish and how he was able to impact more than anything so many. But uh, this
3: has been a great franchise. And I, I really feel my mind uh, if we went all the way back. When we started, the city of Indianapolis was kind of run down. It was kind of run down. And all of these guys became household names and got a following, perked up the city. We got the franchise to the point
4: Well, we had to build a new arena, Market Square Arena. And of course, today we look down the street
3: and we see bankers live. The Colts come in town. And this is a first class city.
0: Slick will live on through his championships, his records, and boom baby, of course. And you never forget how he made you feel. Slick will be missed, but never forgotten. Coming up tomorrow on the podcast, I'll talk with his former roommate on the road, David Craig, the longtime Pacers trainer.